so we turn to uh, what is a very important portion of Scripture for me because I claim to be Pauline in my theology. Uh, his letter to the Galatians is of monumental importance uh, as we of the United Methodist Church wrestle with the issues of our day. And so I turn to, uh, in his letter to the Galatians, the second chapter, and I'll begin reading with the 15th verse, and then I'll turn to the third chapter for the second reading. So listen, will you, for the word of God, as it's proclaimed by God's servant, the Apostle Paul. We who were born Jews and not Gentile sinners have nevertheless learned that someone is reckoned as upright not by practicing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And we too came to believe in Christ Jesus so as to be reckoned as upright by faith in Christ and not by practicing the law, since no human being can be found upright by keeping the law. Now, if we too are found to be sinners on the grounds that we seek our justification in Christ, it would surely follow that Christ was at the service of sin, out of the question. If I now rebuild everything I once demolished, I prove that I was wrong before. In fact, through the law, I am dead to the law so that I can be alive to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and yet I am alive. Yet it is no longer I, but Christ living in me. The life that I am now living subject to the limitation of human nature, I am living in faith, faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am not setting aside God's grace as of no value. It is merely that if saving justice comes through the law, Christ died needlessly. And then turning to the third chapter, I'll begin reading with the 23rd verse. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, locked up to wait for the faith which would eventually be revealed to us. So the law was serving as a slave. Now that's the word that's used to translate this word. I think that a better word to translate it would be tutor. So the law was serving as a tutor to look after us, to lead us to Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor looking after us, for all of you are the children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Since every one of you that has been baptized has been clothed in Christ, there can be neither Jew nor Greek, there can be neither slave nor free, there can be neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And simply by being Christ, you are that progeny, 
descendants of Abraham, the heirs named in the promise. Amen. Unless you are visiting our church this morning, I think it's safe to say that you already know that Marty and I have recently welcomed a puppy into our family. His name is Prince, uh, Sir Prince Huckleberry Soper, to be precise. Uh, Prince is a schnauzer, and he's just turned six months old. For my birthday, Marty gave me tuition for Prince and me to enroll in a puppy training class at PetSmart. So each Wednesday evening, Prince and I went off to school to learn the essentials of being a puppy in the world. A week ago, Prince and I graduated. But he did not receive his degree summa cum laude. As a matter of fact, on one Wednesday night several weeks ago, Prince and I were kicked out of class. Yes, it's true. We were sent home. It appears that Prince has what the trainer diagnosed as leash aggression. Four-month-old Prince, that's the age he was at this time, while on his leash, tried to attack a dog. Fortunately, it was only a moment of contact because the dog he went after was a young pit bull several times his size. He hasn't yet conquered his leash aggression, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Prince can sit, look, stay, wait, and leave it really well. All of that is good, I suppose, even if he becomes aggressive with other dogs while he's on a leash. What really counts, though, as far as we're concerned, are his perfected abilities. His perfected ability to cuddle and his perfected ability to make us smile every time we come through the door. What we have established, even in a few short months, is the shared confidence that he can depend on us and we can depend on him. Now, I don't know if I'm going to say anything at all significant today, but let me tell you, this is probably as good as it gets. Listen to this, will you? Unrealistic expectations imposed on either puppies or people can cause severe impediments in the health and well-being of relationships. I don't need to repeat that, do I? It's unrealistic to expect a puppy to be something other than a puppy. Equally disturbing is when persons of sacred worth are expected to be someone other than the persons they have been created to be. 
Let's look at this text. It's absolutely an amazing piece of scripture. The Apostle Paul learned about a problem that had arisen in the churches of Galatia. It appears that the members of those churches had been told that the gospel of Jesus, which had been taught to them by Paul, was not sufficient. The members of those churches were Gentiles, people who were not Jewish before they became Christians. Everything that they knew about God, they had learned from Paul. After sharing his faithful understanding of Christ's gospel with the Gentiles, apparently there were some people who came into the community. After he had left Galatia, after he went on to other places, there were some people who came into the community who led them astray. There's significant disagreement as to the identity of those who had been contradicting Paul's teachings. Paul refers to them as troublemakers. Some scholars believe that those troublemakers were Christian missionaries, Jewish Christian missionaries from Jerusalem, while others think that they may have been Jewish Christians within the membership of those Galatian congregations. Wherever they were from, their message was destructive. They told the Gentile Christians that they could not be authentic members of the Christian covenant until they first followed the laws of Judaism. Specifically, the men among them would have to be circumcised or fix their leash aggression. Paul was gravely concerned and angry because he had taught the Gentiles who had been raised in polythe polytheistic traditions that was based on rewards and punishments, Gentiles who were taught that particular gods would punish them if they behaved wrongly and reward them if they did what was right. Paul told them, though, that the Christ of God, that Jesus Christ lived, died, and was resurrected so that they would know that the only thing they had to do, the only thing they had to do in order to be in a right relationship with God was to accept, to accept the simple truth that God's grace and love was for them. Paul was not telling them to reject the law of Judaism entirely. He was telling them that Jewish ritual was secondary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of Judaism's laws are terrific, of course. Don't steal, don't kill people. Love mom and dad. Love God and neighbor as self. The law about circumcision is dubious at best. Paul was angry, maybe outraged, because the troublemakers were disregarding the simple yet all-powerful truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ made undeniably clear. God loves Jews. God loves Gentiles unconditionally. 
So for God's sake, don't impose restrictions on that love and grace, the love and grace revealed through Christ. The Gentiles didn't need to act like Jews before they could be authentic Christians, even though acting like Jews can be, especially for Jewish Christians, most inspiring. The point is that Gentiles don't have to act like Jews in order to be authentic Christians. This past February, the United Methodist Church passed legislation that ignored Paul's warning. Troublemakers within the United Methodist Church have invalidated the authenticity, I'll speak for myself, of my faith by their imposition of rigid rules. I feel confident that many, if not most of you, feel the same way. In fact, after giving my entire life to promoting the gospel of Christ through the Methodist Church, I've been told that if I don't do what I find to be utterly offensive, if I don't discriminate against my LGBTQ plus siblings, then I need to leave the church that my family has supported since 1740. The 21st century troublemakers of the United Methodist Church have determined that persons who are not straight are loved less by God, less than those who accept their dogmatic neo-orthodoxy. That makes me angry, and I imagine it makes you angry too because it ignores the essence of Christ's gospel. It ignores the gospel that Christ died to uphold and the gospel that Paul and many others died to uphold. It ignores the gospel that proclaims the faithful fact that all of us, and I mean all of us, are invited to accept and receive God's love, God's grace is for everyone. Now, here's where Paul becomes crystal clear, I think, and, and this is where Paul invites us to join him from our place of equality. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and yet I am alive, yet it is no longer I, but Christ living in me. The life that I am now living, subject to the limitations of human nature, I am living in faith. Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a detail in Paul's declaration that can be overlooked easily, especially if we don't read it in Greek. It has to do with the difference between having faith in Christ or having the faith of Christ. As I just read it from the New Jerusalem Bible, which is a marvelous translation, verse 20 reads, 
It is no longer I, but Christ living in me. The life that I am now living, subject to the limitations of human nature, I am living in faith, faith in the Son of God. That's the way the Greek is translated in most English translations. When we look at this text in the Greek itself, the language in which Paul wrote all of his letters, we discover that Paul did not write, I live by faith in the Son of God. Rather, Paul actually writes, and pistai so te tu uiu tu theu, translated word for word, it says, in faith I live that of the Son of God. I hear Paul saying that we are not limited to having faith in Christ. Certainly, he did have faith in Christ, just as we do. But of great importance is this detail that translators find challenging. It appears to me that Paul means what he says when he tells us that it's, it's Christ who lives in him. It may be that Paul is telling us that the living Christ of God is so close to us that Jesus Christ actually dwells within us. Therefore, what we reveal or express is actually the faith of the Christ who dwells within us. Now, I'm not going to try at all to discuss the, the physiology of that. I don't understand how that happens. I don't understand anything about love relative to its physiology either. But I know it's real, and I know I can experience it, and I know it fills my heart. So it is with Christ. It is not simply that we believe in something that is out there at a distance, something out there in a transcendent way. Rather, the covenant relationship that we have with the resurrected Christ can be so intimate that what Christ once did in his ministry, Christ continues to do in our ministry. Paul is telling the Gentile Christians of Galatia and all the Christians in North Haven Church gathered in the sacred space this morning that Christ lives within us. Therefore, at best, we live our lives allowing Christ to influence the decisions we make. So it is that whoever we are, above all else, we are the embodiment of Christ. In his ministry, Jesus was passionate about justice and about compassion for the poor. And now, because Christ lives in us, Christ continues to be passionate about justice and have compassion for the poor. Christ loved God and neighbor as self, and so through us, Christ continues to love others in the same way. Throughout his ministry, Christ did everything in his power to change the world for good, so must we be available to Christ then so that Christ continues to transform the world for good. 
what I know, and I believe Paul knew this too, is that Christ relies on all of us, all of us. There's yet another passage in Paul's letter to the Galatians that we can't overlook. To the Gentile Christians, he wrote, for all of you are children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, since every one of you that has been baptized has been clothed in Christ. There can be neither Jew nor Greek. There can be neither slave nor free. There can be neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What does he mean by that? Dr. Victor Furnish helps us understand this passage. He wrote in one of his book, books, in Christ these, meaning Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, in Christ these have been relativized even though they remain. You hear what he's saying? You see, according to the gospel of Christ, a Jew doesn't become a Greek, nor does a Greek or Gentile have to become a Jew. A slave may not necessarily become free, even though that was a possibility in the first century, and a female is never less important than a male, ever, ever. All of that is secondary to the primary reality. In reality, all of us are clothed in Christ. How dare the troublemakers, how dare the troublemakers of the United Methodist Church legislate that particular individuals are excluded from being clothed in Christ. All of us are the persons through whom the love and grace of God are revealed. To the extent that we allow that to happen, no matter how we identify ourselves, Jew or Gentile, gay or straight, female or male, Anglo, or African-American, no matter how we identify ourselves, when we let the love of Christ define our behavior, there is revealed the glimpses of godliness. You've seen it, haven't you? We saw it this morning among the children who were before us. I have and I've seen the appearance of Christ vividly when the gaggle of us in all shapes and sizes get together and dare to call ourselves church. Please allow me to share an illustration of how this becomes formational. 
Well, I was the pastor of Holy Covenant United Methodist Church in Carrollton, and we did all we could to protect those who were fleeing the war in El Salvador. We did a lot of that ministry in concert with people here at North Haven Church. Gail and I have known each other for a long time through that ministry. We would bond refugees out of the detention centers on the border and house them in the church. We turned some of the classrooms into apartments at the church, or we would house them in our homes. Um, we did that while we worked with the Canadian government to help them gain political asylee status in Canada. Our government would reject them almost always, but the Canadian government accepted them 100% of the time. And so over the years we were doing that, we were able to move hundreds of refugees into Canada, and it was amazing. Her name was Maria. We had heard that she and her two boys had been arrested on the border, so we bonded them out and brought them to the church so we could start the process of having them gain political asylee status in Canada. It was about two weeks into their stay, and usually it took about two weeks before the trust level was sufficient enough for us to have bold conversation. So it was about two weeks into her stay when Maria was willing to share her story with me. She told me that her husband was a bricklayer, and he was a member of the Masons Union. And at that time, death squads were killing all the people who were members of various unions, the Masons Union, the Teachers Union, the Carpentry Union, and so on. And it was absolutely horrific. So her husband had been killed, and she was left for dead. And I'm not going to go into the details of that. You let your imagination go wild, and you will be accurate in what you imagine. Maria managed to get back to her house and to her children. Her friends helped her recover her health so that she was strong enough in order to make her way out of El Salvador with her two sons. 21 days later, they arrived at the border and they presented themselves. They were arrested and put in prison. And that's when we heard about them and bonded them out. In my conversation with her on that day, I felt as though there was something else about her story, something that she wasn't sharing with me, and so I was somewhat bold, I suppose. I asked her what was going on. I mean, obviously, she had reason for tremendous grief, but it seemed to be more than that. It was at that time that she told me she had two other younger children that she had to leave behind in El Salvador. Two little ones that couldn't have made the journey. With the help of Nancy Boyer, and some of you, I'm sure, remember her, we were able to locate Maria's two little children. We were part of an overground railroad of Catholic churches that ran through El Salvador, up through Guatemala and Mexico, and up to the border. So it was that these children were 
located and then transported from church to church to church until they arrived at the border. We immediately took them into our care. We didn't tell Maria anything about what we were doing because we feared that she would be faced with yet another tremendous tragedy. On a Sunday morning, at the beginning of July, in a communion service, while we gathered in one large circle around the sanctuary, I served everyone in that circle and left Maria and her two boys to be lost. And after I served them communion, I said, Maria, we have a surprise for you. And two members of the church came from a back room, each of them carrying a little child in her arms, a little boy and a little girl. Those precious children were then placed in the arms of their mother. That's what happens when the Christ of God is revealed through people like you. Through people like every single one of you. That's what happens when we put no limitations on Christ's body in the world today. When we listen to the Apostle Paul, who made it so clear that Christ is for everyone and through everyone. Thanks be to God that we are here with one another, celebrating the power and goodness and love and grace that is ours to behold.